Good morning. Right. Happy Mother's Day uh, to all of the moms in here. As a, as a family of faith, we uh, love our moms. We are so thankful for you guys and all that you guys have done uh, for us, for your kids, for your uh, kids' lives. We know how important moms are. Kenzie and I have a, a lot of friends now who are having their first kids. And uh, so it's seeing the, the fear and anxiety in their eyes, but also the, the excitement. We, we know that those emotions are coming up because of what a big deal it is to be a parent, how, how uh, impactful a, a mom can be on a child. And so we're really thankful for you guys uh, and what, all that you do, all that you have done uh, for your kids and uh, for, for this church. So we would not be where we are as people without our moms. We would not be where we are as a church without the moms that, that help. Uh, make up our church body. So we're really thankful for you guys. We're going to be in Acts chapter 14 this morning. Acts chapter 14. Continuing on with our series, To the Nations. This look at the third part of the book of Acts as the, the gospel is going forth uh, out of Jerusalem, out of Judea and Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. We, we follow, uh, right now we're following Paul and Barnabas on their journeys uh, as they go and they went to uh, uh, Cyrus, uh, um, they went to, or excuse me, Cyprus, they went to uh, Cilicia, they went to uh, Antioch and Pisidia, they went to Iconium. Here we are, verse 8 of Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to start this morning. It says this, Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to, meet, to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in, in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even with these words. They scarcely restrained them, the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word shapes and guides us. We thank you that your word instructs us, uh, that we are able to, to learn from you, learn what you're like, learn what your, your nature is, learn what you have for us in our world, what you expect of us, what you uh, desire of us. Oh God, we pray that this morning as we open up your word, God, that you would reveal yourself to us in a powerful way. God, that we would, we would hear from you, that we would learn about you, and it wouldn't just go to our head, but God, that it would impact everything about us. That what we hear from your word this morning would change the way that we live, it would change the way that we think, it would change the way that we speak. God, grow us and shape us in the image of Jesus. Cause us to leave here this morning better than when we came. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you what your favorite class was in high school or college, um, I'm sure all of our answers would probably be the same. Physics, right? 
absolutely loved it, right? Uh, everybody across the board, it's their favorite class. Um, when I took physics in high school, uh, I was, uh, mine was taught by a, a swim coach. Uh, and that's not a knock on him. He loved physics. Uh, it wasn't like they, he was a coach first and then they decided you got to teach something. Here's the worst class in high school. Um, like he, he liked physics. He asked for it specifically. And so, um, so I was taught by this swim coach. And uh, he was a good teacher. This isn't a knock on him at all. Well, on one of our exams, uh, we're taking the exam, and, um, and we get to one of the problems that we had to solve. And, and so I'm trying to solve the problem, and I'm like, I, I cannot figure this out. I can't, I can't get the equation to balance. I can't get it to work out. And so I, keep, I just work on it and work on it and work on it and still can't get it to, to, to solve it. So finally, I, I, think, I don't think there's a solution to this. And so I randomly bubbled C on the, you know, the Scantron multiple choice test. So I'm like, if, if you don't have an answer, just put C. It's probably C. So I bubbled C. And then I wrote on the exam, I said, I don't think there's a solution to this. And we turned the, the test in. Uh, we got our test back. I actually got credit for the question because the answer on his answer key was C, which is great. Um, but he got, he got out the test. And uh, the, the day after the test, usually we had a review of the exam, kind of what people missed. And, and so we got out the test, and he, he walked up to the board, and he said, some of you, and he like, looked directly at me, some of you don't think there's a solution to this problem. So let me explain the solution. And so he, he starts writing on the board the solution to this problem. He, he, he writes out the equation. He does all the math that he does to get to the answer. And, and so he, he solves some things, and he goes, there you go. The answer is, is 6. The answer is C. Uh, but the problem is, as he's doing his math, he made several math errors. Like he, he messed up the order of operations. He didn't do one, uh, what he did to one side of the equation. He didn't do the other side. Right, so these are like basic math errors that he made. So all along this solving this equation, he, he, he landed on an answer, but that's because he messed up his math. And, he, and then he turns around to all of us and he goes, so does this make sense? And like staring directly at me. Now, I was not one of the students who would correct a teacher. Like usually I'd just be like, yeah, sure, that makes sense. But he started it, right? <laughs> and so I said, uh, and I, I was being respectful. I didn't stand up and go, nope. You know, like I, I was being respectful. I was like, well, wouldn't you have to do one side or the other? And he kind of looked at it. After I pointed out the math mistakes, he looked at it. And he just laughed. And he said, well, Brent, if you used my math, you would have gotten six. <laughs> if you use actual math, there's no solution. <laughs> but we live in a world where everybody has their own math where everybody is, is interpreting uh, the problems, the, the things that come into our lives, the, the, the reality. We're all interpreting it a little bit differently. And our world says, just use the math that works for you. <laughs> right? If your math works for you and you get to an answer that's good for you, then use your math. I'm going to use my math. We're all, we're all using the math that's best for us. Like, we all have a worldview, some lens through which we interpret our, our world. We all take in the information that's in front of us. We all take in all of the variables, all of the complexity of our world, and we all compile it into some lens, filter it through some lens, and so that we come out with an answer. We come out with what we think of problems X, Y, and Z, what we think of our world. We all have a lens through which we view reality. And our culture will tell us that whatever your lens is is okay. That's good for you. There is no absolute truth. There's nothing that's absolutely right. Just you come to whatever is good for you. As long as you're happy and we're happy, then everything is good. But what we see in Scripture is that there is truth. That not every view is equally valid. That there is math. 
not just individual maths. <laughs> my, my teacher, uh, even though he got an answer of six using his math, that didn't change the fact that the problem was unsolvable. <laughs> we all have different views, and they're not all good. They're not all equally valid. We can see this morning uh, in Acts chapter 14, in the story that we're about to see, we can see what happens when two different views collide. Look with me, beginning in verse 8. Well, uh, before we get to verse 8, we skipped over, if you, if you were here last week, we ended with chapter 13. Uh, we skipped over 1 through 7 this morning. It's a story very similar to uh, what happened at Antioch Pisidia. So as a quick recap, Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch Pisidia. They proclaimed the gospel. Uh, people got saved. The Jewish religious leaders in the city got jealous, and so they, they riled up some people in the town, and they kicked them out. Then Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium, the next town over. They preach. People get saved. The Jewish religious leaders get in that town get jealous and upset. They rile up some people, and they kick them out of Iconium. And so finally, uh, Paul and Barnabas actually flee Iconium for their life, and they end up in a town called Lystra. And this is what, they, what we see in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began to walk. So Paul and Barnabas are making their way down to Lystra, and it says in verse 7 uh, of chapter 14, they, were, they continued to preach the gospel. So as they're making their way down to Lystra, the purpose of their mission is to go and to proclaim the gospel to people who've never heard it before. And so as they go, they flee Iconium for their life. They head down to Lystra. They're doing the same thing. They're going and they're preaching the gospel. And so they make their way to Lystra. They get into the town and do the same thing they've done at seven towns before. They go and they preach that Jesus Christ came and he died for their salvation. They go and they proclaim the glorious good news of the gospel, that there is salvation found in Jesus Christ. And as they're preaching, Paul looks and he sees a man who has never walked in his life, a man who has been crippled since the day that he was born, and the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information on this story. And the reason for that is that this guy is not the main character of the story. He's just a side character uh, and a, a small portion of the story. And so we don't get the guy's name. We don't really get anything that has to do with, with the interaction between him and Paul. We get a very small snippet. But what we see is that Paul is preaching the gospel. This man uh, can't walk. He's never walked. And he's looking up at Paul. And the, the, the text says that Paul saw, they saw him and saw that he had faith to be made well. So somewhere in Paul preaching the gospel, as, God, as Paul is, is talking about the power of Jesus, as he's talking about salvation in Christ, this guy is looking up at Paul and he has faith. He, he's believing what he's being told, that he really truly believes that he can have salvation in Jesus Christ, that there is redemption for him in Christ Jesus, that there is restoration for him. Even the limbs that he's never used, there is restoration for him in Christ Jesus. And he's looking at Paul with hope and faith, just ready to receive and experience what it is that God has for him. The, the text really doesn't give any indication that he's expecting to be healed that day. <laughs> that, is, that he's expecting Paul to reach out and say, get up and walk. But, but what we do see is that this guy is looking at Paul saying, I believe in Jesus. And I believe that there will be a day when I will be restored. There will be a day when I'll be healed. There will be a day 
when by the power of God, I will get up and walk. It just came a lot sooner than he was probably expecting. He says he's looking at Paul. Paul looks back at him, and then he sees the faith. He sees the intensity. He sees that he's listening to every word that is proclaimed, that he's proclaiming about the gospel. And he looks at the man, and he says, get up and walk. And sure enough, he gets up. Now, why would Paul do this? Why would Paul heal this man who's been crippled since his birth? I know the, the easy answer would be, why not? <laughs> right? Like, he's, he's a guy that, uh, that's been crippled, and Paul uh, has the ability by the power of Jesus to heal him. So why not? Why not get him to stand up? But the reason that Paul does this, the reason that Paul performs this miracle, that Jesus works his power through Paul, is that Paul is illustrating the message that he was preaching. Paul was painting a picture of the redemption and the power of Jesus uh, to the people that were around. All right, so here's Paul preaching that God is powerful enough to save you from your sins. That God is powerful enough to bring you redemption and eternal life. That by the power and the blood of Christ, you can be forgiven and redeemed and restored, and the entire world will be brought back into, uh, into submission under him. That the whole world is going to go back to a, a Genesis 1 reality with hope and life and restoration. So Paul is preaching about the power of God. He's preaching about the beauty of Christ in the gospel. He's preaching about salvation that comes from Jesus. And then he shows exactly what that looks like, that Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save you because he looks at the man and he says, by the power of Christ, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. How powerful is Jesus? This guy who's never walked a day in his life gets up and he starts walking. He illustrates not just the power of Jesus, but the fact that in the coming kingdom of Christ, there will be no cripple. There will be no brokenness. There will be no pain. And as he's proclaiming about the coming kingdom of God, he illustrates exactly what the kingdom of God is going to look like, so he heals the man way earlier, way earlier than he probably expected. <laughs> but he heals the man, restores his ability, or gives him the ability to walk for the very first time. And then the crowds respond totally incorrectly. We see in verse 11. The crowd saw, that Paul, saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconium, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. So here's Paul proclaiming the fact that Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, has provided redemption and eternal life. Here's Paul proclaiming the beauty and the power of the gospel, and he illustrates the beauty and the power of the gospel with this miracle. And all of the crowds are supposed to look at that miracle and say, yes, Jesus Christ is powerful. Yes, Jesus Christ does offer salvation and forgiveness. Yes, the message that Paul proclaims is true and accurate, but instead, all of the crowds, they look at the miracle, they look at, at this guy who's been crippled since birth walking, and they look at Paul and Barnabas and say, yes, the gods are here. The Roman pagan deities are among us. Like they, it's like they don't listen to a single word that Paul said. And it's not because they didn't hear Paul, right? They, they, they look at Paul and Barnabas, they say, Barnabas, that guy's got to be Zeus, because we love Zeus. And he points, out, he points out Paul, and he says, that guy's got to be Hermes, because he, t 
talks a lot. Right? And so they've heard Paul talking. Like they are very well aware that he, that he is sharing something. They should have known the gospel, but it's like they didn't hear a single word. Right? It's like they never at all understood the message of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. Instead, they looked at Paul and, Bar- Paul and Barnabas. They said, you guys must be pagan gods. What happened? It's that, though, it's that that crowd filtered the information through the wrong lens. Right? That crowd had a lens, a view of the world that said that the Roman pagan deities are gods. That said that they're powerful, that they're mighty, and that all of the good things in the world come from those pagan deities. And so when they saw what was happening in front of them, when they saw what was going on, they said, it's got to be the gods. It's got to be Zeus. It's got to be Hermes. We don't know anything else. So I filtered it through the incorrect lens. And look, it goes even further because the, the, the priests of Zeus, they, they get their oxen and garlands together, and they're like, we want to sacrifice to you, Paul. We want to sacrifice to you, Barnabas. And they're like, what are you, what are you doing? You've got this all wrong that's not even remotely close to the way you were supposed to interpret that. Paul and Barnabas respond in verse 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. So Paul and Barnabas, this Old Testament uh, kind of look at uh, what they do is they tear their garments. That was... That was used to say that they were mourning. They were, they were sorry for what was taking place. They were not in approval for it. So they tear their garments, and it's obvious that they are not okay with what's going on. That this, this, uh, that this sacrifices, that this uh, praising and worshiping them as pagan deities, it's obvious that that is not at all the way that they were supposed to handle this. And Paul and Barnabas rush out into the crowd, and they say this in verse 14, or beginning in verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So what we see that Paul and Barnabas do, the very first thing that they do, the way that they respond is they point out the things that are incorrect about these, people view, these people's viewpoint. He shows them how their view is not in alignment with reality. Because Paul, th- this crowd is saying, these people are Zeus, these people are Hermes, these people are pagan deities and gods, and Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, we're not. You can believe that all you want, but I'm not Zeus and he's not Hermes. We are not pagan deities. We are not gods. And so he points out just how wrong those assumptions are. He points out just how wrong those views are. He says, we are men like you of like nature, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He says, you have ascribed these things to to these pagan deities of yours. You have ascribed these things to Zeus and to Hermes, but the reality is that all of these things have taken place because of God. All of these things have taken place because of the creator 
of all things, the God who loves you and cares about you. They are pointing out just how wrong these views are and how the lens that they've filtered everything in the world through is contrary to reality. Then they keep going in verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So what we see that not only did Paul and Barnabas point out what was wrong in, the other person, in, in that crowd's viewpoints, they also corrected it and explained what was right. So they didn't just say, no, we're not gods. You guys have it wrong. Your view of the gods is incorrect. What he then goes on to do is explain the truth. He then goes on to explain reality. He says the reality is that there's a God who created all things. There's a God who loves you. And even though he has allowed you to go believe what you want for all of these years, he is now bringing you salvation. And the whole time that you've been believing these other things, he has still loved you enough to pour out rain, to bring you good crops so that you could have food, so that you could have happiness. Like he, he did all of these things for you just so you could have a knowledge of who he was. And you continued to worship these other things. But the power of the gospel has now come to you. He, Paul and Barnabas are pointing out that it, what you believe is that all of these Roman gods have brought you life. All of these Roman gods have brought you prosperity. And he says, it's not Zeus, it's not Hermes, it's not Poseidon, it's not Apollo, it's not Athena. None of those gods, none of those things have brought you life because none of those things are real. The one who has given you grain, the one who has given you food, the one who has given you everything you need for existence is the God, the creator of the universe. So Paul points out just how wrong their views are, and then he goes on to tell them what is true, what is right, what is good. That there's a God who created all things, that he loves them. It says in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So, so even when Paul and Barnabas proclaimed what is right, they pointed out what is wrong, uh, it still wasn't enough in their case. People still clung to their false, incorrect view of the world. They still held on to it. Even though what they believed had been shown to be false, they still clung to what they, uh, what they should not cling to. Here's what I want us to see this morning from this story. When you and I go and engage the world, we are engaging uh, we are engaging distorted views of reality. So engage the world critically and evangelistically. When we leave these doors and we go out and we see people in the world, we talk to people in the world, we go to our jobs, we talk with our neighbors, like we go and interact with the world, what we're doing is we are engaging with people, interacting with distorted views of reality, things, uh, things that, uh, views that have been filtered through incorrect lenses. And so as we go out, we need to be critical of the things that we interact with, and we need to interact evangelistically with the people around us. So what do I mean by that? First, we need to be critical. We need to interact and engage critically with the world around us, which means we need to recognize that the world around us is filtering things through an incorrect lens. 
and that the things that the world is proposing are rooted in a distorted view of reality. So let me give you an example. A good example of this would be psychology. Our society is obsessed with psychology. We, are, we love uh, labeling things in psychological terms. Right, so all of the problems of mankind, everything that's going wrong in your life, you can label it some kind of, of psychological term. We can diagnose it psychologically. And then we go on and say that psychology can fix whatever is wrong with you. We go on to prescribe things that are going to make things better in purely psychological terms. So we, we say all of the problems of man are psychologically rooted, but all of the solutions can be psychologically rooted. We go on and, and write prescriptions for drugs that will help uh, with some of the problems of depression and anxiety and, and other things. We go on and we, we, we highlight therapy as a great uh, resource to, uh, to fix all of the problems, everything that's wrong. And so our world is obsessed with psychology. But psychology is rooted, fundamentally rooted in views that are distortions of reality. Because what's happened is, as psychology has come about, they have filtered out God. They have filtered out sin. They have filtered out uh, the enemy of God and, and demons and, and oppression. They have filtered out the true problems of reality. And they have provided solutions to symptoms and filtered out the solution of the gospel, which is what the word of God says is the root uh, solution to all the problems in the world. So it doesn't mean that psychology is bad and not to engage in it at all. That's not at all what I'm saying. There are a lot of great things in psychology. There are true medical problems that, that, that medicine can solve. There, are, there is uh, a great benefit to therapy, particularly Christian therapy, who, who can provide, uh, with, with pastors or counselors, who can provide uh, biblical insight and truth into what's going on. There are great, uh, psychology has been a, a great at diagnosing some of the problems that are going on with, with the things that are, uh, with, with mental things in our lives. There's a lot of good in psychology. What I'm saying is not to abandon psychology. What I'm saying is to engage in it critically. Don't just accept psychological terms as accurate. Don't just accept what psychology teaches as the ultimate truth. What we have to do is we have to read and know Scripture and filter everything that we're hearing, everything that we're learning in psychology through what the Word of God says. Because some of the things that are taught by psychologists are rooted in a distortion of reality. They're not rooted in reality. They're rooted in, in, in them filtering things through an incorrect lens and producing the wrong solution. So we have to know Scripture and engage critically with psychology. There, in the 80s and 90s, books became popular like uh, Codependent No More and uh, um, uh, it's not Understand Me Now, I don't think. Uh, something, uh, something similar to that. Uh, authors like Henry Cloud became popular with, uh, with one of his books, um, When the World Doesn't Seem to Make Sense. Uh, and Henry Cloud has done a lot of good things for the church. He's put a lot of great books out. He's a Christian psychologist with a lot of good stuff out. But one of the things that he proposed in that book that became popular in churches as they accepted all these psychological ideas is they said that Scripture is not enough, that spiritual truths are not enough, and we need to begin using psychological terms to describe and define the things in our world. And so when Christians first go through psych psychological uh, uh, when they first turn to psychology to diagnose what's wrong and not scripture, that's a problem. 
when we first turn to psychology to fix the problems of the world and not the gospel, that's a problem. We need to turn people to the Word of God. We need to highlight what Scripture says about what's going on in our world. Engage critically with the world. Here's another example. Politics. In our country, we live in a a country that's predominantly a two-party system. And what becomes common in two-party systems across the world is that people take a side. They pick their camp. And in our culture, we, we have people that pick the camp of Republican, we have people that pick the camp of Democrat, and then if you're, if you're a conservative, you, you listen to media that, in, that, that agrees with you, so you may listen to Fox News, and if you're, you're, if you're liberal, you may listen to media that agrees with you, may, you may listen to CNN or MSNBC, and then if you, you, you begin to look down on the people on the other side, like, I can't believe they would watch that stuff, and they, and they pick their camp, they pick their side, and they just go along with whatever the, the party that they have aligned with, they go along with their platform. And say, this is what's right. This is what we need to get behind. This is what we need to do. My problem is not that we decide to vote. It's not that we decide to pick a party. Like, yes, engage in our culture. Go vote. Go, go use uh, your God-given ability to influence our government in a, in a crazy, incredible way. Like, go do those things, but engage critically with politics. Don't just accept what your preferred party says as reality. Don't just accept what a news media tells you as what's true. All of those things are being filtered through lenses that are not the word of God. And so the things that are being thrown out, the things that are being proposed, are, dis- are, are likely distortions of reality, not perfect alignment with reality. Know the word of God and critically engage with the world. When we have Christians across the country idolizing Trump, that's a problem. And when we have Christians across the country demonizing Trump and idolizing a Democrat, that's a problem. Engage critically with the world. Recognize that God himself has revealed what's true in his word. God has given us scripture to reveal to us what is, what is right and what is true, to give us a glimpse at reality. And everything in here is sufficient for what we need to know about aligning with reality. So filter what you experience, filter what you see, engage the world critically, filtering it through the word of God. Engage critically, but also engage it evangelistically. When Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the gospel and and, and the crowds cried out and said, you guys are Zeus, you guys are Hermes, Paul and Barnabas didn't just walk away and say, we're, we're done with you guys. It broke their hearts that the crowds were believing something that wasn't true. And what they wanted more than anything else were for those crowds to come to know Jesus. To recognize that what they believe is not true and to place their faith in Christ. What the crowds needed to know is there's a God who loves them, a God who cares about them, a God who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for them so they could have salvation. So as we go and we engage the world, we need to recognize that, that it should break our hearts that the people around us believe things that aren't true. That the people around us believe things that are not God-honoring, that are not righteous, that are not aligned with reality. It should break 
our hearts. And so we should long to go reach people with the gospel. We should long to, to speak and, and think evangelistically. And we should not just want to go and tell people that they're wrong. We should want to go and share people the hope of eternal life that comes from Jesus. Like one of the most polarizing topics today is abortion. It's the most polarizing topic in our country. It's on every news outlet in, in the nation uh, because of, of what's going on in, 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 our, uh, in Washington. And unequivocally, we, we believe that, uh, that, that abortion should end. That, that the killing of unborn children is not okay. That it is a, a horrible, sinful stain on our nation. But as Christians, we need to engage the world evangelistically. Recognize that the viewpoints of other people aren't, aren't, uh, aren't that they're generally uh, bad, but they're filtered through an incorrect lens and produce a distorted view of reality. So when we go in and we engage the world, what they need is not to know that abortion is bad. What they need to know is that there's a God who loves them and who cares for them. A God who gives hope and life. The message that we proclaim to the world is not abortion needs to end, even though it's true. The message we proclaim to the world is that there's a God who loves and cares for children from the unborn to adulthood to the rest of their lives. There's a God who loves and cares for mothers and women. There's a God who loves and cares for the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for it. So when we go and we engage the world, that's the message that needs to come forth. We as the churches need to go and love people, love women, love children well to evidence the gospel. So that people know that there's a God who loves them. People know there's a God who cares about them, that there's salvation in Jesus. We need to go engage the world evangelistically. We can go and we can solve all of the world's problems and we would just be solving symptoms. Because what God has said in his word is that the thing the world needs the most is to know him. To have a relationship with him. That's why God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for every single one of us. To give us eternal life. When we go and we engage the world. Engage the world critically. And engage the world evangelistically. Some of you here this morning. You need to know for the very first time that God loves you. God cares about you. That God sent his son Jesus to die for you. You need to really experience the grace of God for the very first time. Because for your whole life, you have believed things about God that aren't true. You've assumed things about reality that are, that are incorrect. But I know and I want you to know that God's word says that there's a God who loves you wants to have a relationship with you. This morning, if that's you, and for the very first time, you want to have a relationship with Jesus, you want to respond in faith like the man who was crippled did, you want to experience the power of Jesus for salvation like the man who was crippled did, if that's you, and in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love for you to come up and just talk to me uh, and I pray with you, and then there are people that would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Do not leave here this morning without experiencing the power of the gospel for your life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father,
We thank you for the eternal life that we have in Jesus, for the for the power uh, that for your power displayed in the cross and in an empty grave. That because of Jesus we can have eternal life. Father, I pray for anybody here who does not know you. Anybody here who's never experienced the power of eternal life, I pray, Father, today for the very first time they would walk into eternal life. That for the, t- today, for the very first time, they would experience your power. Today, for the very first time, they would understand truth. God, that they would turn from their distorted views of reality. They would, they would turn from believing things that are lies. And today, they would know for the very first time that you love them and care for them. They would experience your grace and your power. Father, I pray for each of us as we go out to the world, that we would we would engage critically. They wouldn't just accept the things of the world as true, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't just accept the things people tell us as right, but that we would filter them through your word. And God, I pray that above all else, we would engage the world evangelistically, that we would, we would share the hope and the life that are found in Jesus. That we would evidence and show and declare by the things we say and do that there is a God who loves you. to make it obvious with the way that we live. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.